So if I had a video camera following me around, I had a moment similar to that video. It was right before I came to Kingsway Christian Church. I was actually struggling with, like, what do I do, God? Do you want me to go? Or do you want me to stay? I was a campus pastor at a large church out in Colorado. Uh, we had just launched a second campus, like an $18.5 million building. There were about 1,000 people coming. It was a pretty awesome experience. People were coming to faith almost every day, very similar to here. It was just fun. And so when this church called and I started sensing God was calling me, I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to change. You ever feel that way? And so I remember this. So it was time to make a decision. The elders at Kingsway and the elders at my last church were going, Matt, we just all need to know, what are you going to do? And I couldn't decide. I was trying to figure out how could I buy a private plane and just do both? And nobody would let me do that. So two hours difference, right? You can figure it out. Anyway, so what I decided was I was going to take my wife and go to Durango, Colorado, and I was going to seek God until he gave me an answer. So we go down there, and I send my wife to this little cabin we were staying in. I'm going to go for a walk, and, and I'll be back in a few hours or when God gives me an answer, whichever one comes first. So I go on this walk down this path. I've never been here before. I don't know, really know where I'm going, and I got to the end of this path, and by the end of this conversation, God had started to resolve all my fears, because let's be honest, fear is what drives most of our decisions in life, is it not? So we seek comfort, we seek stability, we seek safe. That's just natural. And so I got to the end of this, and I just really felt like God was saying, go. Go to Kingsway Christian Church, move to Indianapolis area, Indiana, and uh, just watch what I could do next. So God had to resolve all these fears about failure and, and all these things about what I wanted for my life and he wanted for my life. And as he knocked all those out, I get to the end of this walk, and I'm at the top of a, of a rock cliff. And I hear this noise coming, and there are, I don't know, 10 or so young men, roughly 16 to 25 years old, and they're jumping off this cliff into this river, this water down below. And I'm watching them, and I'm thinking, this is bold and stupid. And there's this rope that they've attached. It's kind of under a bridge, and there's this rope that they've attached to the bridge, and they're swinging off the rope and into the water, and they're doing flips and all kinds of things, and they're, you know, literally some of them are jumping out next to other guys are in the water. I'm like, this is dumb. And I'm sitting there watching them, and as I'm watching them do this dumb thing, I'm starting to think to myself, this is dumb and looks so awesome. I hadn't had kids yet, so I could make different decisions about my life at that point. And I just remember, there was this critical moment where I felt like God said, jump, jump, I got you. And so I did. So I went back and got my wife and brought her on this trip and I, uh, I jumped. And I remember choosing to jump was such a huge metaphor for me. It was this marker moment where God said, Matt, I'm going to have you literally physically jump here because I want this to be representative of what I'm going to do in you later. Of course, when I jumped, I didn't anticipate the rope swinging out kind of towards the wall of the bridge. And you can't change direction in midair. I don't know if you've ever tried doing this. You can't, you know, if you ever tried flying, it doesn't work real well. So I kind of hit the wall and had to push off the wall and then <clears throat> landed sideways and actually bruised my eardrum. And okay, so <clears throat> it didn't look half as cool as some of those videos, but it was my moment. And here was the big thing. As I was watching this and trying to wrestle with, do I have the guts to jump? The one thing that encouraged me to do it was that there were others who had gone before me. And I seriously thought, even though they, they, they may be foolish, they may be crazy, but they were being bold. And I was watching their bold step of faith and going, you know what? I'm not sure that that's really that hard. I can do this. 
Well, that's kind of the theme of today's message. As we dig into, we're going to the book of Acts, we end up here today in chapter 3 and chapter 4, one of the best stories in the whole Bible, and if you come to Kingsway for very long, you'll hear me say that every week, because I just think you know some great stories in the Bible. And what you're going to see in the story is, I don't know about you, I went to Kent State University my first year of college, and um, I was taught all kinds of things about religion and Christianity, and even though they weren't religious courses, there was very much an agenda that was being pushed down my throat. And we were told things like, well, you couldn't trust the Bible. Bible, and it was a, a, a book written by some people about their perspective about Jesus. But when you actually pick up this book, as we're going to see today, and you read the things in this book, there's some stuff that just doesn't sound like some people who wrote a book. It sounds like they're reporting something they actually saw and they actually did. And so the burden historically is actually on all of us to say, if it didn't actually take place, how can we know it didn't actually take place? And I would just encourage you, if you're visiting here today, you're not sure about Jesus and God and church and all this other stuff, to just approach the book, even read the book and ask yourself this question, how can I know if these things actually took place or not? Go and wrestle with them. Because what you will find is there's very little history outside of the Bible written about it. A guy named Josephus wrote some things about the biblical story, but not even a lot. He was a Jewish man hired by the Roman government to write a bunch of things, and he references Jesus and his disciples and a few things that they were reported to have done, but that's about it. So then you have to argue, if this thing is all a farce, why is nobody saying it? So for instance, we have Mormonism today created by Joseph Smith, and there is a plethora, a plethora of historical documents calling foul on what Joseph Smith claims happened. There was a lot of people going, that doesn't make sense, but in Jesus' day, something happened and people didn't write about it. People didn't say, well, that doesn't add up, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't exist, and part of the reason I would suggest to you, if you're wrestling with this, is because maybe it really did happen. It's hard to refute actual happenings. So with that being said, we're going to jump into our story, Acts chapter 3. But here's the setup to Acts chapter 3. So Jesus dies on a cross and he raises from the dead. And then he tells the disciples, I want you to go in Jerusalem and wait because God is going to come and live inside you. And that's what we call the Holy Spirit. God's going to literally empower you and equip you and take up residence inside you. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside you, what's going to happen is you're going to have power, untold power from on high. You're going to be able to do amazing things. In fact, John 14 and 15, Jesus tells the disciples, you will do greater things than me. And I have to set this up for today's text. When Jesus told the disciples, you're going to do greater things than me, you know what he's not talking about? This is where we misunderstand that text. He's not saying you're going to do greater miracles than me. And part of the reason I know that is I don't know of any miracle greater than raising someone from the dead. I don't know any miracle greater than raising yourself from the dead. I mean, it'd be pretty stinking awesome to raise somebody else from the dead. That would be amazing. Go ahead and raise yourself from the dead. That's impossible. So there's no way what Jesus meant is you will literally do miracles bigger than him. What I believe Jesus meant, and I'm getting this from most commentaries today, what I believe Jesus meant is simply this. Number one, the scope of what we do will be bigger than the scope of what Jesus did. We will reach more people over the coming years of the church and church history than Jesus did as he focused his ministry on ancient Palestine, Jerusalem, and specifically the disciples. And in addition to that, we won't have miracles and signs and wonders to back up our message, but our message will still accomplish the same thing. 
So when the New Testament, literally the disciples and the apostles performed miracles like Jesus, they rose people from the dead, they healed people miraculously, they did all kinds of things like this, and everybody saw it and was a witness to it, and that gave their message credence. So people could literally look at them and say, I don't even agree with what they're saying, I don't buy into what they're teaching, however, I can't argue with that deaf person hearing, I can't argue with that blind man seeing, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm going to listen a little longer. And that's how miracles serve the New Testament church. But miracles died out, interestingly enough, and that capacity died out within a few hundred years, a few hundred years of Jesus, about the same time that the Bible was put together, Old and New Testament. It's very interesting. And I think it's because what we have today in the Word of God is all we need to accomplish the will of God. Now, God does do miracles. I can tell you story after story after story, but we don't see them with the frequency and the regularity that we saw them in the New Testament because we don't need a miracle to accomplish the love and the mission of God. So the disciples become filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden they go from whimper, whimpering, cowering men to bold proclaimers of the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up and he preaches this message and 3,000 people come to faith that day. So we roughly go from 120 to 3,120 believers in Jesus Christ right there on what we call the day of Pentecost. And we get into chapter 3 right after this. And our story begins. I'm going to read parts and I'm going to summarize parts. Our story begins. Peter and John one day go, hey, what do you think we should do? You know, we got the Holy Spirit. All these people are coming to faith. What do you think we should do next? So they decide to go to the temple. Now the temple would be the Jewish temple. There are no churches. There are no church buildings. At this point, it's a ragtag group of believers. The disciples are still gathering in Jerusalem. They've not scattered to the ends of the earth yet. That's coming. However, the temple, the Jewish temple, it had these different segments to it. So you have the outer area, and everybody's allowed in there, Gentiles, men, women. And then you guys, you move into each corner or inner sanctum of the temple, less and less people are allowed to go in. So the inner, inner, inner sanctum is the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest was allowed to go in there and only one day a year. But in that outer area, the outer courtyard, everybody was allowed. And so what we read in the New Testament is all of the church gathered in that outer area. However many thousands were still in Jerusalem that didn't go home after Pentecost would gather in there and celebrate and just tell stories about what Jesus was doing in their lives, just like we're doing here today. And so one day, Peter and John, the two pillars of the New Testament church, they decide to go to the temple to just see what might happen. This is very interesting for us and where we're going today. And so on their way to the temple, there is a man there. He's a lame man. Now, lame means different in the Bible than it means today. He's not lame like your pastor is lame. <clears throat> He's not lame like your, I don't know, maybe your kids' teachers you, they think are lame. I love teachers. I'm, not, I'm just saying. I know how kids talk. Not lame like, you know, uh, my sports team, the Cleveland Browns, are pretty lame. It's not lame like that. Lame in the Bible, which apparently this joke is falling, so I should just move on quickly. <laughs> lame, is a, lame in biblical terms would have to do with usually a physical disability of some sort or another. In this case, he's a crippled man. So we don't know exactly what's going on or what's wrong, but we know he can't walk, he can't move. So his family and friends would bring him on a regular basis on the road to the temple because everybody had to go to the temple of Jewish culture. They put him right there so he could beg for what's called alms. And the alms was really kind of commanded by culture. Those who had had to give alms to the poor, just a little bit of money to help them kind of move on and be able to survive in life. And many times the rich would do this arrogantly, like, look, I'm giving alms to the poor, that kind of thing. So Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and here's this lame man, and he's begging them, alms to the poor, alms to the poor. And what happens next is fascinating. 
Peter looks right at him. And in fact, it tells us in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he looks at them, Peter and John, intently. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I know this. It's as if Peter and John are studying this man. They want to know something about him and his story. And here's what he says to him, verse 6. And Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazarene, get up and walk. Okay, so question number one, is that bold? Notice what Peter and John didn't do. Peter didn't say, okay, can, you, can you hang on for a second? Hey, John, come here. Do you think we should help him? Hey, um, you got any change on you? No? Can you turn out your pockets? I'm more in a toga, dude. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Just leave it alone, okay. Um, what if we heal him? <gasps> yeah. How, how did Jesus do that last time? Well, he spit in the mud one time. Uh, let's, what else did he do? What if we just tell him to get up? Notice that conversation never takes place. There's no conferring with each other. There's no plan. There's no master thought process about this. They're walking along. Their entire plan is we're going to go to the temple and just see what God does. Why? Because Jesus already told them, I am with you to the very end of the age. In fact, in John 14, he even goes further. He says, and so whatever, whatever, whatever you ask for in my name, it will be done for you. And they just believe Jesus. So when the man says, can you help? Peter says, I would love to help. I just don't have what you're asking for, but I've actually got something better. And the first thing I want you to latch on to today is throughout life, throughout life, God is going to create opportunities for you to share the love of Jesus with people. But if you're not paying attention, you're going to be tempted to meet what they want and not what they need. What did this man want? Food. Is that a bad want? No. But what does he need? Well, don't misunderstand. He really doesn't need to walk. He actually needs food more than he needs to walk because he may never walk again, but if he doesn't eat, he'll die. Are you with me? He needs food more than he needs to walk. So it's not about Peter healing him. You know what it is about. What his deepest need is, he needs to know a Savior. And Peter cuts right through what he thinks is the real issue and deals with his heart. And the man gets up and he walks. And I know if you're visiting, that may be hard for you to believe. Like, come on. Maybe it's all a farce. Maybe it's all a fake. Like, maybe, just maybe, the disciples had some actor go over there and fake it and act like this. And I would say, if that's true, then why at the end of the story in chapter 4 do we find the church going from 3,120 to 5,000 men, not counting women and children? Something happened that day that more than doubled, likely tripled the size of the church. Something happened. And what I believe happened more than anything is the love of God was shown to a man who needed it. See, here at Kingsway, we have a, a little phrase we use often. And this phrase we call our vision statement. And a vision statement, in case you don't know what these things are, a vision statement is just a description of who we're trying to become. 
You know, it's this thing that we can come back to every year, every five years, every 10 years, every 20 years. We could say, are we doing it? How are we doing? Are we doing good at this? Are we getting it done? And our statement is this. You may have heard this before you've been here for any length of time. Kingsway, a place where the lost and broken are transformed by the love of Christ. So let me just ask you this question. How are we doing? In your life, is your life being transformed by the love of Christ? When you show up at Kingsway, are you meeting people who love Jesus? So uh, every night, um, I set an alarm. I don't know how you wake up. I used to have a dog that would wake me up when he was ready to go to the bathroom and eat in the morning. That dog passed away. So now I have to use an alarm like most humans. And um, when my alarm wakes me up in the morning, I have to turn on my iPhone and then shut off the alarm usually because I'm still not tech savvy enough to know how to do it within one swipe. And so I opened my, uh, my window this morning, my desktop on the phone, and um, there I have a new email. Well, sometimes I get junk mail in the middle of the night like everybody else, an advertisement, this or that, and I open up my email just to see who it is or what it is, and uh, at 1 a.m. last night, I received an email from a young man, and uh, he's telling me that recently he, he got caught up in alcohol and it wrecked a relationship in his life, and some people here loved him and didn't judge him but led him to Jesus. And he's just saying, what's the next step? I need some help. Is there a group or a community of people here that would come alongside me? And I seriously, even though I couldn't see and I'd sleep my eyes and I was still, you know, trying to decide whether to go back to sleep for a half hour or not, I thought, it's working. I mean, it's just one example, but it's working. Kingsway is still a place where the lost and the broken are being transformed, not by the judgmentalism of Christ, not by those who are condemning in Christ, but by the love of Christ. And just so you know, in case this is your story, because I think if I went around, more of you than not would say this is your story. Just last week after the services, I was out drinking some of our new coffee. If you don't know, somehow you missed it. We have coffee out there. Praise Jesus for all the things he does for us. (laughs) Jesus and coffee are the two things everybody needs. Anyway... One of these two could go away, but it's debatable. Anyway, um, and I was just talking to some ladies I met for the first time. They have similar stories, but totally different. They're going through hard seasons. They're going through hard seasons. Different family stuff, marital stuff going on for their own reasons. I don't need to share, but I just thought they're here. They're here. And they're asking me about small groups, and they want to start a small group for people going through stuff like them. And I thought, it's working. It's working. The love of Christ is being played out in the lives of real people. So let me just say this real quick. So I can go, go on my message, but... If you're visiting Kingsway or you've been coming for a while and you just don't know, okay, like, man, I want to be transformed by the love of Christ. What's next for me? And we have a whole table out here full of these. And it just says, be bold, safe is boring. And we just put a bunch of steps on there, like maybe meet Jesus or get baptized. And then on the inside, it says, you know, do you want to read your Bible? You don't know how, we'll help you. You want to become a member? Let's talk about that. You need some help, some sort of care, divorce care, or counseling of some sort. You want to join a small group and get in community with others. You want to plug into the body of Christ, start serving. If you want to start giving, let me just tell you, we could use it. Whatever it is, missions, we have this luncheon today, and we're trying to get 100 people to take on a kid. And so if you just, any of these things, one or all of them or many of them, reach out, just fill out this card. You can do it all at the table, stick it in the box. You can do it at any point in the service. But this is working. It is working here at Kingsway. Lives are being changed by your love. And I just want to say stop for a minute and give God the glory. Just stop for a minute and say thank you, God, for doing this in us. Now, 
let's look at how the love that Peter and John have for this man changes everything. Because this is what I want to build on today. I want you to see this. So the guy gets up and he's jumping around and he's praising God. And he's literally hanging on Peter and John. You can imagine. If you've been lame your whole life or most of your life and all of a sudden somebody heals you, he's a bit excited to let Peter and John and everybody else know. And so I love this. I don't have this on the screen for you. But if you were to look at verse 12 in your Bible, if you don't have one, you could pull one out from maybe under you wherever you sit. Be around page 832, 833 in your Bible. In verse 12 of chapter 3, we see this. Peter sees an opportunity coming. So everybody recognizes this dude. He's always on the road, on the way to the temple. People have given money to him for years, but now he's running around. They're a little bit curious, like, so is this guy a fake? Is he real? What's happened? How did it happen? And Peter does not miss an opportunity. So he just starts preaching Jesus, and he starts preaching it in the most offensive way possible. And I'm like, Peter, don't you know that if you're going to love these people, you ought to be really kind to them and nice and safe. And here's the thing that may revolutionize some of your thinking. Believer or unbeliever in this room, it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't consider love and safe as one and the same. The Bible considers love as bold. Jesus left heaven where he was worshipped as king and he took on flesh and became some of the poorest on the earth, didn't even have a place to sleep, didn't know where his next meal was going to come from, and died on a cross willingly so you could know him. That's not safe. It's bold. And Peter stands up and he preaches this crazy message and he walks to the prophets and all this stuff of the message and tells them this. I'm just going to pick up a part of it. You can read the rest on your own. Look at verse 17. Here's part of what he says. I realize, I love this. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Well, at least that's a little nice because Peter just was a little less, you know, in their face. Hey, I realize you're ignorant. <clears throat> but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, get this. While Peter just told him, you guys killed him, you did it, you're the ones who crucified him, you and your leaders and the Romans and all that, what he just did is he said, but just realize what he did here is huge. Just realize, while you did these things and our leaders did these things, they were only doing what God always knew would happen. There's a safety in that. There's a comfort in that. Yes, you're guilty, but don't worry because God already knew what you would do before you did it. Now, let me just say to you, if you're visiting here today, you don't know Jesus, you're wrestling with this whole thing, God knew everything that you were going to do to mess up your life before you did it. And then the next verse. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. What Peter just said to them is, look, you're guilty. Your life's a wreck. You've ruined it. But turn to God because he loves you. And he wants to take away every mistake you've ever made. And when he does that, I love this, my, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, and I say that every week, I know. But verse 20, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Times of refreshment for your life are just around the corner. What do I need to do to get that? Just turn to God. 
Stop trying to fix it on your own. Stop trying to get it right. Stop trying to clean up your mess and then come to him. Stop believing you got it all together. Stop buying the lie you're selling to everybody else. Finally be humble enough to admit you got a problem. Turn to God and he will refresh you. If your life is at a dead end and it's frustrating and it's overwhelming and privately you know something's not right, then would you just take a step of humility and find the refreshment of the Lord and he will not hold back his Savior, your Savior, from you. There's a lot we could learn from Peter. He goes on and... um, I love what he says next. I've got to hit it quickly because I've got other things I want to cover. But look at verse 21 to 23. For he, this is Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. What Peter just did in that moment is he proclaimed the gospel in a nugget. So if you don't know Old Testament history, then you don't understand what he's saying. But the people Jesus, or sorry, Peter is talking to are very well acquainted with the Old Testament. They know it very well. And what he said is this. You guys remember back in the Old Testament? You remember back in the old story, our history we talk about all the time, we'll recap. Remember how Moses, that great prophet, we consider him the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Remember how he told us one day there's going to be a prophet like him and greater than him. His name is Jesus. So now he's going back and he's connecting the dots from their history to their present. And he's saying, remember that? And if you connect the dots, part of what he's saying is, remember how when the people sinned against God, remember how when they made golden calves to worship because they didn't want to worship God, remember when they turned their stubborn hearts and faces toward God, and because of that, God was ready to destroy them and start all over with a different plan. Remember how God's anger and wrath burned against our ancestors? And you remember how Moses went before God and begged God, don't crush your people though they deserve it. Don't destroy them though they've earned it. Instead, instead, God, God, make your name great by forgiving them. And remember how God listened to Moses and he did that? What Peter's saying is that's what Jesus does for you, but in a more perfect, eternal way. When your life is overwhelmed, out of control, and you finally realize you have been fighting against God, running from God, and it finally dawns on you, what you need to know is you have a perfect Savior who mediates on your behalf before God and says, God, this one's with me. And I love him and I love her. Don't pour out your wrath on them. Pour it out on me. And the Father says, I already did that on the cross. And this is the message that Peter is delivering. You think, Peter, shouldn't you at least buy him a meal first or, you know, do something really, really sweet or kind? Peter's like, no, because this is the opportunity that God presented me, the chance to speak the truth in love. It's an offensive truth, but it's a great, great, great truth. And I sometimes wonder today what's gone wrong in American Christianity. We are so afraid to jump. We're so afraid of getting hurt. We're so afraid of failing. But our fears almost have no basis in reality. What's the worst that someone could do to you if you lovingly tell them about Jesus? What's the worst they could do to you? Not talk to you again? 
I don't mean to be condescending or pejorative, but really? Well, they might make fun of me. And? Well, they might spit in my food. Okay, that one's probably got some validity to it. The fears that we have about what others will do or say if we tried to tell them about the love of God are so unfounded. Now, don't get me wrong. In other parts of the world, they're very real. It's just that we live in the safest country, and most of us live in the safest neighborhoods in the safest country in the world to be a Christian. I don't mean for that to make you feel bad. I mean for that to make you wrestle with what are you afraid of? Mockery? It's almost as if we don't really believe the message. So what happens next is it causes a big ruckus. Thousands and thousands of people are gathered around. They're listening to Peter and John, and the religious leaders get angry. And you need to know there's a political thing going on as well as a religious thing. The religious thing is they don't want to lose their power. <clears throat> they're very concerned because they're teaching in the temple that day, <clears throat> and people are listening to Peter and John and not to them. And so there's a power, pride, sin issue going on. But the other thing is Rome has given the Jews special permission so when Rome came in and conquered a country, they would basically say, you adopt our Roman false gods, all this pantheon of gods, all these hundreds of gods that they had. You worship all these gods and you can become one of us and we'll be fine. You pay your taxes to Caesar. But to the Jews, they basically realized a long time ago, if we just let them worship their God and don't force them to worship all the Roman gods, then they become a peaceful people. If we push them and try to force them to worship our gods, then they start to rebel and fight back. So as long as you keep peace among yourselves, then we will allow you to worship your one and only God. If you don't keep peace, we'll come in and deal with it. And this has happened throughout history. We'll talk some more maybe throughout this series if I had time. This actually happened in history. The Romans would kind of raise up, or the, sorry, the Jews would raise up, and the Romans would come in and squash them. And so part of what's going on here is both sinful, prideful, but also part of what's about to happen is the religious leaders are going, we got to keep quiet. Shh. Keep a lid on this thing. Don't stir the, the pot. Don't rock the boat. You know, the Romans might come in and make things hard for us. So what happens next is Peter and John get arrested, and because it's later in the evening, they put them in prison. So they spend all night in a cold, damp, nasty prison. The next day, they bring him out for a trial. And I love this, because here's where we pick up. Look at Acts chapter 4, now verse 7. So they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? And I love this. I love this because there's a whole bunch of sarcasm, respectful sarcasm, but sarcasm nonetheless in Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with sarcasm, I mean the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? In other words, are you really putting us in prison and bringing us here because we healed a guy? That's really what this is about? What Peter's doing in this moment, while his question is dripping with, yes, sarcasm, what he's really doing is he's piercing through the surface layer down to the real heart of the issue. Let's be really honest about this. We're not really standing here because we did a good deed. We're really standing here because you don't like in the name that we did it. And it's not your power and it's not your thing. And he says in the next verse, do you want to know how he was healed? And then he goes on. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Well, Peter, can you just not drop it already? Like, do you have to keep noodling and needling? Like, they just put you in prison. 
Peter's no longer cowering at a servant girl by a fire like he was before Jesus was crucified. He's now bold. He's like, what's the worst they can do? I mean, Jesus told him the worst they could do. Earlier in Matthew, when Jesus was with them, he said, guys, do not fear the ones who can kill you, and after that, do nothing to you. Fear the one who, after killing you, can throw you into hell. He's the one to fear. So Peter's going, look, the worst you could do is kill me. That's all you got? Bring it. And then I want to get this verse in there. Verse 12. He goes on, he says some other things, but in verse 12 he says this, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Look, I know some of you visiting with us, you buy into the mantra of our day, this postmodern, all roads lead to the same place. It's just that the Bible doesn't allow for that. So you need to know something. Yes, you could call yourself a Christian. You could say you love God, and you could theoretically say, I'm no different than a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jewish person or a Hindu. But at some point, you, the burden is on you to wrestle with what did the Bible teach us about God, not what do I think about God. And every time we come across a passage that challenges what we believe about God, we have two choices, ignore it or change what we believe. And this verse ought to challenge you. Even if you're not even sure you believe it, it ought to challenge you. Because what Peter makes crystal clear, there's, he's talking to Jewish religious leaders. He's not giving them an option. Like, yeah, just keep doing your Jewish thing and you'll be okay. No, he's saying, you are in a dangerous situation. And I'm warning you because I love you. There's no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved. You need a savior. Well, that didn't go real well. So they kick him out of the room, and they don't know what to do. And so after they kick Peter and John out, they have this conversation like, what do we do? What do we do? If we, if we punish them, if we you know, give them a, a lashing of some sort or a caning or a whipping or a, or a flatulation, if we, um, if we do that, that was flagellation. That's a, I think I said the wrong word. <laughs> Focus before this gets real ugly the youth minister in me wants to come out right now. (laughs) Give me a second here. (laughs) I've slipped with a lot of words over time. That was the, that one takes the cake for the moment. All right, moving on. If we, (laughs) if we punish them in some other kind of way, it's going to cause a riot, (laughs) especially in that kind of way. Could you imagine? It's going to cause a riot among the people. And so they decide to send them off with a stern warning. Stop talking about Jesus or we will do worse to you. And I love Peter's response in verse 19. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Do you get this? Peter and John are bold. We cannot stop. We can't draw back. We can't hold back. We can't pull back. I know you don't want to hear it. I know it makes you uncomfortable. I know you don't like it, but we can't stop. We literally can't stop. Why? Because God told us to do this. 
Literally, Peter and John are what we call evangelists. And that word evangelist or evangelism comes from a Greek word, the eongelion, which you're like, who cares? I know. We transliterated this word, eongelion, into evangelist, evangelical, all those various translations of it, because literally what eongelion means is the good newsers. That would be the literal translation. It means the ones who go around telling about the good news of Jesus. That's all that an evangelist is. It's kind of warped in our day to mean this guy who stands up and he spits a lot and he whatever and you got to come and kneel down and there's, this kind of happened all in the 70s and the 80s and that's not what it meant. It just meant somebody goes around and shares the good news of Jesus. That's what it means. That's why we have a core value here at Kingsway. Now the core value is this, evangelism, evangelism, helping people find their way to God. That's the bottom line. That's what we're trying to be about. So how do we become a place that transforms by the love of Christ? We help people find their way to God. That's it. And some of you are here today because somebody did that. And there's a lot of things you can do. There's a lot of ways to get that done. My one challenge to you, my one challenge to you is whatever you do, be bold. Don't be safe. Don't think that they're okay without you engaging. Don't think that you'll get around to it. If God presents the opportunity like he did Peter and John, be bold enough to step into the moment, into the pain, walk through the door, and simply say, man, I love you. And God loves you. And he loves you too much then to leave you where you are. In fact, I have found this phrase to be the most helpful. When Jesus' first disciples are coming to faith in Jesus, early, 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 the book of Luke, book of Matthew, book of Mark. You see this phrase, so Andrew goes to Peter, their brothers, and they go to others, Nathaniel, and there's this phrase that kind of keeps popping up in different forms, and it's this, come and see, come and see. And come and see simply means this, look, 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 I know, I know life's going through a hard time, I know your marriage falling apart, I know there's all this stuff going on, would you just come and see a people of God who love him so much, and they want to help you. Would you just come and see what Jesus could do in your life? I know you've got a lot of questions, and maybe I don't even know how to answer all your questions. Would you just come and see? There are people literally in this room that I'm so proud of because they're living this. They've, they've not made it harder than it is. I think sometimes we make it so much harder. What if they ask questions I don't know how to answer? I get asked questions almost every week that I don't know how to answer. You know, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul literally says in one of his books, do not think you know everything. Nobody knows everything. Well, if the Apostle Paul doesn't know everything, then you don't either, and it's okay. You don't have to know. They might ask, but what about when my baby died? Why did, why did God do that? I don't know. Would you just come and see? Because I know God loves you. And you can invite them to your small group. You can invite them to the church. You can invite them to maybe a class that you take or, or invite them to take part in feeding kids who are hungry, 100 kids all over the world. They don't have to go to Kingsway to support one of these kids. Hey, come and see. Come and see a group of people who love so much they give sacrificially to make sure that 100 kids all over the world have food and education and what they need to, to be able to focus on everyday life and not survival. Come and see. Now, here's the thing. There are three natural times in people's lives that they are most susceptible, most open to you saying, come and see. And I just want to train your brain that when you hear one of these three situations, you're going to go... That's God creating an opportunity for me to say, come and see. Here's the first one. So three opportunities, three cues. First one is new to the neighborhood. I intentionally picked three phrases with alliteration. And the reason I did this is because I hate alliteration. So I made fun of me in my own notes. But 
The first one is new to the neighborhood, new to the neighborhood. And what this simply means is you're talking to somebody and they say, you know what, they're new to Avon, Indiana, they're new to Hendricks County, they're new to whatever it is, they just, they just got here, they just moved here. And the reason I say this, because our mission is to transform people with the love of Christ who are what? Lost and broken. When people move, no matter what they present on the outside, it's a hard season. When my wife and I moved here six and a half years ago, we came to a church that loved us with open arms. We brought our son, just started a new family. Everything was fantastic, but it was one of the most stressful seasons of our lives. I got really good at putting up a front on stage, but it was hard. Not because we weren't loved by a church, but because moving and transition is hard. And when people are in hard seasons, you know who's there? God. You think about this for a minute. When everything is great, you're making lots of money, no problems in your kids or family, I don't know if that season ever comes, but whatever it is, going on lots of vacations, you don't need God because you're not thinking about it. But then God creates a moment in your life where you got to turn to him, and what happens? All of a sudden, it's like, I need God. And so you're talking to someone, and you're like, hey, we just moved here. It's the perfect opportunity to say, hey, come and see. And they may say, well, I don't know. We're not really the church going type. Did you just throw this one in? You moved to the Midwest, dude. Everybody in the Midwest goes to church, I think. You don't want to be left out, do you? I'm just kidding. You don't have to go that route. But come and see. Just come and see. If you don't like it, it's okay. But just come and see. I think you'd be surprised. The second one, the second one. A time of transition. Here's what I mean by a time of transition. Yes, moving is a time of transition, but I mean this one different. A time of transition is... um, my, my wife and I, uh, this is true, this is just me saying, my wife and I um, were separated while we try to figure out whether our marriage is going to work. Hey, my last kid just graduated, went off to college. We're empty nesters now. My spouse just died, and I'm a, I'm a widower, widower. It's a, it's a time of transition. There's something in life where you're going from one phase of life to a new phase of life. And why do I say that's a natural time to say, come and see? Because it's in those moments that life is hard and it's difficult and it's complex. And Jesus wants to show up and be Jesus. And here's the last one, personal pain, personal pain. When somebody comes to you and says, man, I was totally wasted and I did X, Y, Z and I wish I hadn't. Somebody says, I'm totally overwhelmed by this addiction. Somebody says, I just found out my spouse is cheating on me. Somebody says, I just found out I have cancer. When all those kinds of phrases and more, when they pop up, it's a natural trigger point for you to say, I know what you need. You need Jesus. And church, let me just ask you, do you believe that Jesus wants to heal sick people? Do you believe that Jesus wants to free slaves to addiction? Do you believe that Jesus wants to put together broken marriages? Do you believe that Jesus wants to equip parents to lead their kids into a relationship with him? Do you believe that Jesus wants to save the lost? If you believe these things, if they are true, even if you don't know how he's going to do it. See, that's where you get hung up. I don't know how God's going to do it. I'm scared he won't come through. And so I'm afraid to jump, to take a bold step, because what if God doesn't do what he's supposed to do? And that's called a lack of faith. When Peter looked at that crippled man, he didn't say to him, gosh, I sure hope Jesus comes through. He looks at him and he says, you get up and walk, because I know what you need. So come and see the one who can heal you 
save you, redeem you, restore you, and help you. It's that simple. I'm going to close with this. So what happens next is uh, the disciples are released, and uh, I love this. They gather together with the other believers. We don't exactly know how many that is or who all is there, but there's a group there, and um, they start praying a prayer. And what I want to do is is, uh, read this prayer and then pray a part of it for us. And um, they start off their prayer in in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. I'm not uh, sorry, verse... uh, 24. I'm not even reading all that. But they started out by praying just, oh God, creator of heaven and earth. Like they're just wanting to, who are we talking to? We're talking to the one who made everything. And then they began to say, you know, you, you prophesied all this was going to happen. And what you need to read there when I read this to you is they're going, we are standing in the middle of fulfilled prophecy. Do you know what changes when you realize you're staying in the middle of ordained time? That means that all of a sudden you realize there's nothing that can happen to me or about me or in front of me that God didn't already know about. And then they say this, verse 27. This is their prayer. In fact, this, everything that's happened to them, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, who you anointed. And I love this because it's like they're telling God what he already knows. It's like, but they're trying to figure it out. They're just, again, they don't even have all the answers. They're just trying to process it as they're praying. Verse 28, but everything, everything that has been happening, they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And I love this. Because remember, they just got threatened with, stop talking about Jesus or we're going to make it worse. And so they finally pray against those people in verse 29. And now, oh Lord, hear their threats and beat the snot out of them not what it says, is it? Oh, God, hear the threats of those who are coming against us and really let them have it, God. That's what we would pray. Jesus teaches us to bless our enemies. And they pray, oh, Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. In other words, don't take away the pressure. Don't take away the pain. Don't take away the persecution. They're not even, they don't even ask for God to stop it. Think about that in your prayers. They just say, God, give us stronger backs to keep doing what we're doing so that when they beat us and throw us in prison, we'll keep going anyway. And then they go on and pray this, verse 30. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I would encourage you with everybody you run into who needs a Savior to pray bold prayers. God, would you heal? God, would you save? God, would you fix? God, would you redeem? Would you, would you bring whatever resource we need? God, would you make this happen? We're going to pray boldly. And after they prayed this way, verse 31, the entire meeting place shook with the presence of God. And they left and they preached with boldness. What we're going to do right now is pray that prayer. When I'm done praying, um, you're going to have a chance to respond to Jesus right now. For those of you who've never taken a step of faith, look, please don't leave today without doing it. Please. I'm begging you. Consider what he has done to show you his love and realize you need a savior and be humble enough to say, I need Jesus. You don't even have to understand what it is you need yet. We can help you with that. 
The rest of us are going to celebrate what Jesus did for us by taking communion. There are tables set up all around the room. And while we're singing these songs, you're going to have time. I encourage you to just take your time and go get the communion, get the bread, the juice, and celebrate what Jesus did for you. Look, if you're visiting and you don't even understand all this stuff, I, I don't care if you take communion. It's between you and him. If you're celebrating what Jesus did for you, feel free. If you need questions, you need prayer, you need answers, and you're ready to receive Jesus, go to my left, your right, over here under that curtain, and just say, I need a Savior, and I'm finally ready to say it. And times of refreshment will come. Let's all stand and pray this bold prayer now. God, I, uh, I know me. I know me. I spend way too much of my time and my energy, my life, praying for safety and comfort and blessing and provision. And I don't spend a lot of time praying like the disciples. God, would you change our church? God, would you change the way we look at this world? God, help us to be bold and confident and courageous and strong, not afraid to love no matter the cost. God, we don't ask that you remove pain and pressure and persecution. We just ask, God, that you give us the boldness to run into it, to run into the pain. God, that we might love one or two or three, even if a 20 more ignore us or mock us. God, that we might just share your love with all and let you work out what happens next. God, teach us to be bold beyond what we've been up to this point. God, teach us to be bold in love, not to just go condemning and judging and spewing words, but to do it all for the glory of God and the heart of God and the love of God. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.